talking about the good life and a couple of chapters in the letter of James. And in this letter, he talks about the good life and he also points out the bad life, the influences that lead into one direction or another, things that lead to the good life, humility and wisdom, things that influence us in the other direction. And he touches on three things. We might call them evils, triple threat, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so he touches on each of them, and each one brings a different influence. The world boasts. And as we think about the particular nature of the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world boasts. Uh, we read in James' letter, it says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When James speaks about friendship with the world, he's not talking about hanging out in bars. He's not talking about the world as a place. He's talking about the world as an operating system. And this operating system, the one the world runs by, is directed by wanting to possess and to parade what is possessed. John talks about the nature of the world, and he talks about the lust of his eyes. And that is not pornography. The lust of the eyes, it can be, but it's more generally wanting what I see. I want to possess what I see. You have a car I want, the world's desires would lead me to want to possess it. So that's possessed. And once you possess something, it talks about the boasting of what he has and does. So parading and then possessing. It's no possess and then parade. It's no good to have something if you can't show it off. So you possess, and then you parade what you possess. The world boasts. And so under the influence of the world, that's what happened. The, the flesh blames. James writes, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? We talk about the word envy. You know what envy is. It's wanting what you have. But the fact is that once envy festers, marinates, I want something that you want, and one day bleeds into another, bleeds into another. I have to look at you having that thing that I want, and I don't have it. I'm living next to you. I have a beater. I look over at you, and you have a new ride. And on day one, it's, boy, I wish I had that car. Day two, why do they have that car and I don't? Day three, day four, and the more time that, that elapses, the more this envy becomes infected, the way a mosquito bite happens when you scratch it. It becomes something different. Infected envy turns envy into something that's a little darker, a little edgier. It's the desire to mistreat or harm somebody who has something that you want. That's what intense envy is, or we might put it in a C, craving. Craving turns into contempt. You know what contempt is, don't you? If the, the face for contempt is, you know, you have to kind of lift the corner of your mouth up, contempt. It's kind of a sneer. That's what it is. Wanting is, that's kind of wanting. It's, I want what you want. But then, but over time, this doesn't become like this. It becomes like this. It becomes a sneer. Craving leads to contempt. 
and then contempt leads to conflict. And that's really what James is talking about. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he says it's the craving inside. The craving that when time elapses turns to contempt with a sneer. And then contempt turns into conflict, craving, contempt, conflict. Kind of a whirlpool, isn't it? Know the way a whirlpool works? If you're in the beginning of it, you can get out of that. The more time you spend in it, craving contempt conflict, craving contempt conflict, and it's very difficult to get out of it. Very difficult to get out of it. Um, leads to resentment and remorse. Talk about resentment. Resentment is, why do you have what I want? Talked to somebody, Tom Benson, last week. He said, you know what, Mike? Resentment is one side of the coin. Remorse is the other side. And it's a good point. Some of us, our issue is not so much resentment at others, but remorse towards ourselves. You know, I know why I don't have what I want. It's because I am no good or because I do this. I looked up the words resentment. It comes from two Latin words, re, which is intense effort, and sentiment is feeling. You know, resentment then is, it's an intense feeling. It's, I can't get it out of my head. You know what the boss did to me the other day? And I might want to forget it, but there it is again. I might want to forget what he did or what the neighbor did or what the neighbor has. Resentment is when something wells up within and you feel it again. It's directed outwards. Remorse, I found out, it's re, the same sense of intense effort, but the word morse comes from the word Latin word mordir, which is interesting. It means to bite, to bite. Something. So remorse, it's when we bite down hard on ourselves. That works, doesn't it? Remorse, that works, doesn't it? Biting down hard on self, you idiot. <clears throat> no wonder they left you. <clears throat> no wonder you don't have the job. You, you understand? Resentment is to feel outwards. Remorse is to bite down hard on ourself. That's under the influence of the flesh. The flesh blames. The world boasts, and the devil has to be a bee. You're wondering, okay, Mike, what does the devil do? begins with a bee. It's not a common word, but it does work. Breaches. The devil breaches. A breach is, to, is somebody who breaches. To breach something is to make a gap in a wall and break through. If, if there's a wall erected, and the way you're going to defeat me if I'm behind a wall, you're going to have to breach the wall, which means you're going to have to make a fissure in it and then make that fissure expand. That's what you do when you breach something, and that's what the devil, the devil breaches so that the influence of the world, remember what the world does? The world boasts, and the influence of the flesh, remember what the flesh does? Blames. Boasting and blaming become irresistible under the influence of the devil. The devil's influence is that he causes the world and the flesh to become irresistible by driving a wedge between us and God. That's what the devil does. He doesn't breach this way. He breaches this way. When there's a divide between God and us, when we're not confident of his care for us, what we'll see is in the wake of, do you really like then, in the wake of that, 
the influence of the world and the flesh become irresistible. Irresistible, that's what we're going to see. Um, the word Satan, it's, the, it's a verb, literally. It means to accuse, to Satan something, is to accuse someone or something. The word devil comes from a word means to divide, to rend asunder. So if everybody's together and I deviled this room, what I would do is divide it. So Satan is the accuser. Devil is the divider. That's what he does. He breaches, forms a fissure to divide this way and this way, using accusation to divide us from God. Because to the degree the gap in confidence between us and God gets bigger, the world and the flesh drive into our lives and their influence is irresistible. That's the way it works. The devil breaches, the world boasts, the flesh blames, and becomes impossible. There's a couple of assumptions when we think of in terms of, well, they're dangerous assumptions. Dangerous assumptions. We'll look at a couple of them. The people James is writing to in this letter are Jewish believers. The happy days of communal life in Jerusalem are distant memories. You remember what happened in the early church to the Jews living in Jerusalem? It was like the Rainbow Coalition. Everybody is selling the land as anybody had need. It was a great place to live. Sure, it was kind of hard, but everybody was sharing their stuff. It was like living in a commune. Like It was great. It was a sense of motion. But then over the years, the time James is writing this letter, at least a decade and a half have passed. And Jesus didn't come back as quickly as they thought he would. They were thinking he was going to usher in the other side any year, but he didn't. One year became five, became ten. There were a couple persecutions that occurred a couple famines, and then Jews were forced, Jewish Christians were forced to leave Jerusalem. So now, if you're a Jew in Jerusalem, you have to move into the Roman Empire, you're down two things. You're down neighborhood. Some of us really like our neighborhood. That's where our friends are. If you had to get yanked, somebody, you know what it's like to get yanked out of your neighborhood. It's difficult, especially in that day. They were down not only neighborhood, but livelihood. They had to leave their jobs. So now here they are. They're in a Gentile culture, and they're not, and they're Jews. And even within Jewish culture, they can't fit in there because they're Christians. They are people without a home. They're down neighborhood. They don't have their livelihood. And one year turned into five, turned into 10, turned into 15. Now here's the problem. It's one thing to make a decision to be a follower of Christ, and the kids are small. You know, little Joshua might be two or three, and we can still take care of him, but now Joshua is 17 or 18 at the time James is writing. And you know where he has to work? For a Gentile farmer. No good jobs. And so what's happening is the Jews are heading back into the synagogue because there were synagogues all over the Roman Empire and that's where if you were a Christian, you couldn't go in there if you were a Jewish Christian. So what they were doing is reneging on the Christianity in order to 
find some type of community, some type of future. That's a tough thing, isn't it? Can you understand the pull, the gravitational pull back into something? Life wasn't very good. Dangerous assumptions. Um, James doesn't mince his words. Look what he says in James 4, 6 through 9. He doesn't deal with them very gently, but it is gentle. He stirs them up. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's a happy passage. Huh? It sounds pretty dark. You know what this sounds a little bit like when you think about this? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Where did you hear that before? Mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst, persecution. Anybody think of a place where those words are found? Beatitudes. Beatitudes. You know what? Somebody wrote a book on the, the Beatitudes. They called them the, no kid, Be Happy Attitudes. The Be Happy Attitudes. Morning, Be Happy Attitudes. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I don't think it's what James is reminding them of. I don't think James is telling them, be happy. You know what he's telling them? Hang in there. Hang in there. And there's a little bit, there's some teeth to it. Hang in there. It's what one soldier might say to another in battle. Hang in. Stay in it. That's what he's doing. Rousing them up. Because it's going to take effort for them to hang in there. It's not be happy. Well, you know, look what it says in Matthew 5. We'll do a series on this probably this year. We'll talk about the Beatitudes. Um, here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We'll look at these words one at a time in a series, probably this fall. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a couple dangerous assumptions. If it feels good, do it. That doesn't jive with this passage. Again, one of the assumptions is, if it feels good, do it. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to have be happy attitudes. Really? Really? I don't see that here. Again, we've, he doesn't dower. We've got to make a we've got to make a stand. There's a couple. In fact, there's a couple of assumptions that are dangerous. But this is one of them. Jesus doesn't depict Christian life as a feel-good experience all the time. So, I guess what that means, and there's good news for some of us, if you don't feel good and you think you should, you might not be doing anything wrong at all. You say, well, I'm a little bit down. Okay, mm -hmm. I get that. 
and Jesus would indicate that if you're a Christian, you're not going to be up all the time. You can't be. What's for the poor in spirit? James understands this, and he says the same thing. You see the you see the the, the connection between what James says and the Beatitudes. James is Jesus' half brother, and he knew Jesus, lived with him, grew up with him. And when Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes, and James is writing this to these people, he's thinking about Jesus, and he's thinking about talking. There is a movement, and I talked about this in Toronto, early 70s, and I think it, it, it popped back up again in the late 90s, I think. They called it holy laughter. And so under the influence of God, the Spirit, people would fall into uncontrollable laughter. Really, it's in the middle of a service, and under the influence of God, people would just be doubled over in belly laughs. And it was seen that that's the influence of God. He causes people to break out in hysterical chuckling. Is there joy in the Christian life? Yeah, laughter, bubbly. I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. James is reminding them that this is, this is in fact, the truth. He challenges the assumption. But we have a problem here. See, this is a dangerous assumption, but this is too. If it feels good, don't do it. Look what it says. 1 Timothy 4, Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Stop. It's going to talk about things taught by demons. What do you think we're going to find? Certainly something diabolical. You know, things taught by demons. What's that going to be? Eat devil's food cake. Got to be something like that, doesn't it? Can't eat angel food cake. It's got to be, yeah, it can't be that. Look what it says. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. There are those who ban pleasures outright. Don't get married. Don't eat food. And so what he's saying, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving. So you can't put the crosshairs on something good and say that's out. You know, so as if God's saying, is this going to be good? Then I don't want it. Is it going to feel good? Is it going to be pleasurable? Nope, nope, you can't do that either. Those are things taught by demons, so we have to find some kind of place in the middle. It can't be, if it feels good, do it. Neither can it be, if it feels good, don't do it. Where does that leave us? Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. God's strategy is to increase our confidence in him. In the context of confidence, as the as our sense of connection with God shrinks, we're closer to him, the dominion of desire shrinks. As our connection with God grows, the dominion of desires grows. That's the way it goes. Confidence and craving are related. Increased confidence that God is with me, decreased craving. Decreased confidence... Increased craving. That's what we're going to find. That's what we're going to see. Let's talk about devilish intentions. Devilish intentions. Look at three from Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Did God really say, the serpent speaking to Eve, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it 
or you will die. I'm going to stop here for just a second, just real quick. Um, you remember God gave instructions to Adam. That's what it indicates in the Bible. And God said, don't eat from the tree, right? God told Adam, don't eat from the tree. Now, the devil says, come on, Eve, did God really say? And she says, God told us, don't eat from the tree and don't even touch it. Where'd that come from? Where did that come from? God told, now, God told Adam, don't eat from it. And then when Eve gets queried, she says, don't touch it. Who told Eve not to touch it? Jeez. God? No. Satan? No. You know, who t- you know who I think told Eve not to touch it? Adam. Adam. And so, so Adam wants Eve to hang around. And so he's thinking, hmm, let me think here. You know, he's not supposed to touch, eat the tree, but you know how Eve is. <laughs> so I'm going to tell her to come 15 minutes early. The meeting is at 745. And the meeting's really at 8. And so he's going to say, uh, what did God say? He said, uh, what about the tree? Yeah, that tree's off bounds. He, he said, don't even touch it. That's what he said. Why did Adam do that? What's that? Love? This way? What about this way? You know who, he's, you know who Adam is protecting Eve from? Who? God. He's protecting Eve from God. What does that say about Adam's perspective towards God? He is, he is afraid of him and has to protect Eve from God. Is there something wrong with this? If sin begins in belief and then becomes behavior, did sin begin when she took the fruit? Or did sin begin when Adam said, don't even touch it? Did something get lost in translation? Did it? Absolutely it did. Sin begins with disbelief and then becomes disobedience. It becomes thoughts. And this is what Satan attacks, thoughts. Watch out for God. You know what's going to happen? If that's in your head, the influence of craving is going to go off the charts. Off the charts. Satan influences Eve. You can't trust God to care for your needs. You know why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit? Okay, uh, can I let you in on something? I'm the serpent. Do you know why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit? Because he doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. You know what he's basically saying? God is self-serving. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He has his best interest in mind. And, and the reason why he doesn't want you to eat the fruit is because then he won't be able to play God anymore. You'll be like him. And he's insecure. You know how insecure God is. You know what I mean? He, he just he really has a hard time. He tries to control things, can't. And, you know, geez, nobody will spend time with him on Sunday, and he feels pretty sad about that. 
and he's given the impression that God's in it for himself. Why is Satan doing that? He is Sataning. Deviling. Sataning and deviling. He's creating a gap. Why is he creating a gap? Because as confidence decreases, what's going to happen to craving? Woof! That's the way it works. Um, Satan attacked Eve at the level of thoughts. Her confidence in God began to shrink. Decreasing confidence gave way to increasing craving. And what ended up happening under the influence of craving, then she can't hold her desires anymore, and she's, you know, what ends up happening, they hide from God, and they hurl at one another. And hmm. Decreased confidence leads to increased craving. Look what it says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. If, I have a thing, if Satan had come to Eve and said, hey, look at that fruit, what do you think? You want to be smart? That fruit will make you smart. And look at how that fruit shines. We don't know if it was an apple. We're not sure what it was. It was something that looked good. If he had come right at her on the basis of craving, would she have caved? I don't think so. What did he do? You know what he ended up saying? Can we talk? Don't look at that tree yet. Let's think about him. He really doesn't have your best interests in mind, does he? Mm. If he did, why would he want... Well, we'll talk about the fruit a little bit later. Um, and you know what starts to happen? Her confidence in God starts to shrink. And you know what happens as the confidence starts to shrink? Boy, that apple is starting to look better and better. It would be fun to be wise. You know why she needed to be wise? She needed to protect herself. Why did she need to protect herself? Can't trust him to protect her. Confidence is gone. Now she has to protect herself. And also, I am kind of hungry. See, that's the way it works. Decreased confidence, increased craving. He throws a rift. He breaches her and God. And then, in that breach, she can't resist. The thing, now this is, I'm going to say this. The thing that we need to do in order to be better at dealing with cravings has nothing to do with cravings and everything to do with confidence in him. To the degree this confidence is strong. Now again, we're always going to have trouble with cravings. To the degree our confidence is high, the impulse of craving becomes more manageable. The most important thing you can do for your spiritual life is cultivate a close connection with him based on the fact that he knows you just as you are and accepts you anyways. You don't have to go from where you are to this advanced place in order to trust God will be good to you. He knows you. And as your confidence in him increases, your craving. See, some of us, we try to stamp out the craving in order to get the confidence. Listen, we try to stamp out the craving in order to get the confidence. If I could only control this. And we work on controlling this, and we say, wait a minute, I know you're not really happy with me, but I've got to control this. And we control the craving, and 
It never works. You know why? Because it's upside down. It's upside down. What we're supposed to do is focus on the connection. And then the craving begins to become more manageable. Is that the truth? It's absolutely the truth. It's absolutely the truth. Ask anybody in recovery. The ability to say no and yes to the bad and the good lies in conscious contact with God. Is that true? Is it true? See, we focus on the wrong thing. We try to stamp out the craving. And we forfeit the connection and the confidence and the power that the connection brings. But that's easy because the devil preaches. And the world boasts and the flesh blames. And it's tough to say no to. Um, so we say that that is, you know what, you know what the thing's a little frightening here? Is that the problem began in the Garden of Eden. There wasn't any sin yet. And the lure of things was that powerful. If, if anybody hasn't told you this yet, you don't live in a perfect house. You don't live in a perfect world. And in fact, you are not a perfect person. If craving could infect Eve and she was in a perfect world and hadn't sinned yet, what are the chances that you're going to be able to rule your craving? They just aren't there. You know what we do? And again, we get it backwards. We've been taught to be afraid of God. So we tune God out. We tune God out. And you know what we do when we tune God out? We tune self in. Turn down the volume on this stuff. When we turn down the volume this way, we turn up the volume this way on desires. Tune out. Tune in. Turn from Turn from. That's when, we, that's when we do the thing. You got the thing? Tune out. Tune in. Turn from. What do we do to reverse that? What do we do to reverse that? Tune ourselves out, right? Right? No. That's not what to do. What do you do? Go back to the beginning. Tune them in. Tune them in. Confidence, because that really is what he wants to say. Confidence leads to, yeah, I understand that. Okay. Um, talk about divine interventions. Devilish intentions are decreased confidence and increased craving. What are we going to find in terms of divine interventions? We're going to find increased confidence. It's what it says, Titus 2, for the grace of God. Grace is God being nice to us as we are. It's God being good to you right where you're sitting with all the stuff that's in your lap. Grace means, and when you experience communion later, when you come and get the elements, do me a favor. Don't leave your baggage under the chair. Bring your baggage with you. The things that you wish weren't true of you but are true. Don't leave them behind thinking God's going to smile at you. No, God wants you 
not a reasonable facsimile of you because he loves you and you don't need to go from where you're sitting to where somebody else is sitting for God to love you. How do you know? That's what grace is. Grace is love that reaches you where you are. You're saying, but Mike, I don't know about, you don't know about the craving. I, I know. Don't get it upside down. Don't get it upside down. Connection, then correction. You understand that? Connection, then correction. Does God want to help you with your issues? Yeah, that's why he wants you to connect with him. Confidence, then craving starts to go down. Grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness? Grace. You know what some people think? That in order to treat sin seriously, you've got to make people afraid. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. How do you know? It's what it says. But doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it make sense for real? Can you frighten somebody into being controlled? Yes. Can you frighten somebody into being loving? No. You know what God wants for you? Not to be self-controlled, but to be other-centered. He wants you to be loving. And he understands that he's not going to frighten you into that. What is he going to do? He's going to love you. He's going to put grace. And as you understand the connection, it will help you. It really will. Gaze at him and his promises. Glance at you and your issues. Gaze. Glance. Look at yourself. Don't gaze at yourself. Gaze at him. His commitments to you. His grace and promises. Gazing will increase confidence. Increased confidence will lead to decreased craving. It's the way it works. Grace teaches us to say no. It says, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace does this. Grace is not treating sin lightly. Grace is treating sin seriously. You want to treat sin seriously? Expose it to grace. That's the way it works. The way it works, God doesn't frighten you to death in terms of the cravings. He fathers them to death. Grace teaches us to say no. When we feel the pull of desires, there's a couple things we can do. We can satisfy them. But the problem with satisfying desires, the law of diminishing returns, you understand that, right? You have to do more to get less. Satisfying, you have to do more to get less. You have to take one thing in order to get this degree of pleasure. Then the next time you have to do two things to get this degree of pleasure, maybe a little bit less. Satisfying desires, now, again, God's not going to say if it feels good, don't do it. But satisfying, silencing them, we make ourselves say, I don't want that. That's it. I just won't want it. It's like trying to stifle a cough. You ever do that? <coughs> you know, it's always been so. You can stifle a cough for a little while, but then it's going <coughs> to... And that's what happens when we try to silence desires. I'm not going to want it. I just won't want it. There. I don't want it anymore. You know what that's called, by the way? Hypocrisy. That's spiritually dangerous. Authenticity is healthy. Or we try to submerge them. With the desire, what you do 
if, if you get looped, then you're not thinking about what you don't want. But the problem is that creates its own problem. Because when you wake up in the morning, and it's not just alcohol, it's gambling, it's not just gambling, food, it's not just food, religion can be an addiction, mood-altering experiences, this is what happens. We get to the place that kind of, this is kind of funny. We need to get to church sometime because we desperately need a feel-good fix. Listen to me. Okay? Sometimes we, we might feel a little sad about our lives. And then we go to a church that doesn't make it okay to feel sad. And so we all have to get all trumped up with, now music is great. But sometimes you need a, like this feel-good fix. And so it's like, I, boy, man, I, if, if I'm going to this church, not this church, but the, the, the feel-happy church, <laughs> the can't-feel-sad church, here's what happens. I walk in, and I might be kind of beat down, but then I need a, I need a worship fix. But, you know, boy, I tell you what, I got to church this morning, and I, I was sad. I was almost poor in spirit. <laughs> really, you know what? I was almost mourning. I was almost meek. I was almost hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Geez, I was in a really bad place, wasn't I? Was I? Was I? When I was mourning about where I am. Is that a bad thing to be? Meek? I was hungering and thirsting for something I don't have yet. Is that a bad place to be? Oh, that's not a bad place to be, is it? That's a blessed place to be. Don't come to church in order to pretend or get some kind of feel-good religious fix. It doesn't last. And it doesn't deal with craving. It just puts craving in Christian clothes. There's many who want to... You know what you do with desires? You can't satisfy silence or submerge them. You know what you do? Soothe them. Soothe them. How does that work? Increase confidence, soothers. If you've got a kid in the back seat and he's hungry, you know, we've talked about this before, what do you say to the kid? Kids are like emotions, like feelings. You know, kids are all feelings. Oh, we'll do this again. Your kid's in the back seat. You're going on vacation. For some of you, this is all too close to home. All too close to home. And there he is. Okay, I won't make those bad noises again because they tape these messages and they have a way of the noises I make have a way of coming back to me and not a good way anyways so you're saying in, in the backseat and so with the kids crying out in the backseat what do you do to them you can't give them whatever he wants him or her you can't satisfy all the desires you can't silence them I'll give you something to cry about <laughs> that that works or you could try I think you're getting a cold. We get, honey, get the NyQuil. <laughs> Do this. <coughs> okay, the NyQuil, he's out. <laughs> so satisfy, silence, or submerge. None of those things work. You know what you can try? Soothe. I know you're hungry. And we'll get someplace just as soon as we can. He might be a little bit whimpery, but that works, doesn't it? That's what God does. Soothe. Your desires. He doesn't tell you to shut up. He doesn't submerge your desires and feel good spiritual stuff. 
and he doesn't tell you, I'm going to give you everything you want now. What he says is, shh, hang on. I know. I know. I know. This side is not always that side will be. But you need to hold on. Increase confidence, decrease craving. Titus says at one time, last verse, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's what it looks like when craving is ruling the roost. Malice and envy, being hated and hating. It says, but when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I want you to see what happens here. We're embroiled in hating and being hated, dominated by pleasure. Somebody who lives for pleasure thinks they're free. What they don't understand is that they are enslaved to pleasures. What do we do to get out? What does it say here? The anger of God appeared. The wrath of God appeared. Is that what it says? You look at the verse. You look at the verse. What does it say appeared and rescued us? What does it say? What does it say? The kindness and love of our God appeared. Kindness leads us to repentance. That makes sense, doesn't it? Trust. He's not anti-pleasure. You just need to wait. He knows. You can trust him. The devil is going to want to breach. God's going to want to close the gap. We're going to experience communion. Why do we do communion on the first Sunday? Why do we do it at all? You know what this table tells you? You're going to go and take the juice representing Christ's blood and the bread representing his body. And here's why you're going to do it. And I want, here's what I want you to think. Now, you don't know, contrary to what people around you might think, you don't have what you want. And it bothers you. And you'd like not to crave what you want, but you can't dominate it. And it scares you. And some of you are really afraid of where you are. And you want to know what to get out. I'm going to ask you to do something that might feel strange. I'm going to ask you to pick up the juice and the bread, and I'm going to ask you to say something to yourself. You are not holding out on me. You are not holding out on me. God is not holding out on you. How do we know? Here's the question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? I'm going to ask that question again. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If I give you my home, I'm going to give you my tent. If I give you my car, I'm going to give you my bicycle, from the greatest to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Is God holding out on you? How do you know he gave his son? Is God holding out on you? How do you know 
He gave his son. That's what you do when you experience communion. Take the bread, take the juice. Thank God I don't have what I want, but you're not holding out on me. Increase my confidence so that my craving might be able to be decreased. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to have some music, and we're, not, we're doing tape. So go up to the table in the back and the front, and there's tables either way. Take the bread, take the juice, and eat of it and drink when you choose. We'll close this in a couple minutes, but you won't be told when to take the elements. But what I want you to do, when you eat the bread and drink the juice, I want you to think about the fact that God sent his son so that you would know that he's not holding out on you. Okay? That he loved you that much. Father, thank you for uh, your wisdom you increase confidence to decrease craving, it's an issue. And you would draw us close and within the warmth of your embrace give us capacities to say no to things and yes to things we should say no and yes to. It's not a perfect thing. It's progress, not perfection. But to the degree we draw closer to you, we find that. Give us wisdom to understand. Help us to practice connection then correction, connection with you first, gazing at you, your promises, your commitments to us, your kindness, your love, your grace. These are empowering influences. Thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.